Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast from the London studios. I'm Daniel P. Brown. And from the Casablanca studios in Africa, I am James Hall. Hello, James. How are you? Yes, I'm doing really well, thank you. And how are you? No, no, no. I got in first with how are you so that you would do the small oh, talk. Small talk, small talk. Do, 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 small talk. Um, so, you know, long story short, I had some major surgery four weeks ago um, and it was a big operation. It was very painful. And uh, uh, yesterday or the day before, I finally came off... Um, my red, regular medication, my painkillers, my um, you know uh, blood clotting injections I was taking every day, that kind of stuff. Um, and I've just had two days of the worst sleep I've had in ages. <laughs> and, and I am feeling happy to be alive. So it, it, there's good and bad. Um, I'm exhausted. Um, but now I should be able to start reintroducing myself to the wonders of the outside world and leaving the house more frequently and might even start swimming again. Uh, my scars are healing well, but my internal wounds are still a little bit sore. Um, uh, missing work, which is weird to say. I've been off for about eight weeks now, maybe maybe not quite that long. But um, yeah, so so I'm just in a kind of a, a no man's land between sickness and health, between well-being and distress, and I am slowly making my way back to normality. Excellent. Small talk, small talk. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you engaged in that conversation. I can see myself in uh, in real life, so to speak, in an interaction with someone, maybe someone who's just an acquaintance and doesn't know me that well, and they do a little bit of uh, chit-chat about something that's just on their mind at the moment, and I've got nothing to say, and so my reaction is going to be, excellent, small talk, small talk. <laughs> yeah. And make sure as you're singing small talk, you walk away from them because you're like, nothing more to see here. Off we go. Did that person <laughs> just just tell me about a life changing experience? Did they open up to me a little bit? Why did they tell me these things? I'm going to walk away singing as if that person's life is dull as dishwater. <laughs> so this week we're going to... <laughs> Okay. Okay. Right. Fine. The thing is, as far as I'm concerned, no, no fuck the, it, carry on. The, the singing of the small talk jingle means the small talk has ended. <laughs> you didn't tell me how you were. I recognise that that is part of the small talk. It can't just be completely one-sided. Uh, I think I'm absolutely fine. I mean, if you really want me to say what's been on my mind today, uh, on the same theme as what you were saying, it's the fact that I get kidney stones from salt and Ooh. I had a, uh, a pizza this week, which is very much a tangent if I start talking about Italian food in Morocco, patterns of when we eat in restaurants 
cook at home or deliver. That's not really, it's not re- relevant to any of it. So that's the bit that I don't say in the story. So moving on. Good, good. Yep. Well noticed. <laughs> I had a pizza this week. And there will have been salt in the pizza, and I knew that. There's no surprise, Mm -hmm. no shock, Mm -hmm. no scandal, nothing like that. Everything was entirely as anticipated. And so I simply judge, guess, or make an educated guess that the amount of salt in the pizza will not create a sufficiently sized kidney stone that will result in me being in hospital. Um, If the particles of sodium are small enough, then they just pass through me and they're gone and I carry on living my life. Does that sting, James? Does that sting? Can you tell when you're, like, dropping a stone through through your urethra? I would say that there are two classifications. There's one that is almost unbearable pain and then there's everything else. And everything else is is so minimal an imposition in my life that I consider it worthwhile occasionally, for example, like this week, eating that delicious takeaway pizza uh, because I simply gamble that the results will not be catastrophic and is satisfactorily close to 100% of the time the results are not catastrophic. And this week is the same. So far, so good, rather. However, um, the, the point is not to, 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 to talk about the statistics of the gamble and how stupid am I for taking my life in my hands just so that I can have a moment on the lips. Um, <laughs> but the purpose is to say that one thing I have noticed is that there are signs that my body tells me like there are little amber lights that I think over years I haven't really like I it feels almost like I'm getting a cold and um sort of like I I have to clear my throat a little bit maybe eight times a day as if I've got a bit of a tickly throat that could turn into a cold or um or and rather the more obvious things like I need to go to the toilet more frequently but these, these basically, there are little signs. I'm noticing this time. I've noticed last time. I noticed the time before that. I noticed the time before that. But the let's say the hundred times before that, I didn't notice. And now that mm-hmm, I've noticed mm-hmm. maybe six consecutive times, identical traits, very closely correlating to the consumption of salt, which is a problem, I'm starting to feel comfortable in settling on the idea that I can recognise knowable traits um, associated with uh, sort of like a little warning sign saying, oh, you ate some salt, better not eat some more. It's okay at the moment, but don't eat any more. And so like that little feeling of a sore throat, this week was probably the first or second time when I felt a sore throat and instead of immediately thinking, I've got a cold, I'm getting ill, um, I was able to remember from experience this might be because of the pizza and have nothing to do with the common cold. I mean, I didn't feel like, before we started recording, I didn't feel like including any of that in the podcast, but... um, Great small talk, though. I mean, great. You got the theme right. You know, you got about... You almost got the length right. No, I didn't. I'm looking at this sea of green, which is 
on the timeline the monologue that I've just given yeah, and but, it's I far mean, too long. There was repetition in there. You know, maybe you didn't have to repeat the tickly throat thing like four times. But, you know, I think the interesting, you know, points that we would both have taken home from this small talk were we in a bar is, hmm, it's interesting to, you know, really try and fine tune and listen to your body and see what it's saying to you about your physical health and well-being. Great small talk, James. Great. That's all I wanted to say. It's interesting right. to pay attention to little dif differences in your body. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Small talk jingle. Cue. We don't actually have one, so uh, I'm not going to insert anything there. Oh, I mean, right. it's just okay. a, if you want a jingle there, you have to sing it live on the spot. Mm. Small talk, small talk. Do-do-do-do, small talk. Okay, so this week we got a good one for you. It's a sort of the follow-up on the last three episodes. We're going to be talking about cognitive bias. And I am no expert in cognitive bias. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, cognitive bias is an incredibly complicated area that in order to get it right, you really need to be an expert in cognitive bias. We're simply talking around the topic. And probably within our conversation we're going to be, in essence, giving examples of a variety of cognitive bias in what we currently think on this topic, which is kind of both um, fun and ironic, I guess. But it's, uh, it's such an interesting and important area to think about when you're thinking about and talking about thinking and the mind and, you know, the psychology of being a human being. And, and, and I think it's only really people who study this very specific area... Um, that would really be able to give you like the full story. But knowing that it exists, knowing that this is something that we are, well, maybe not experiencing, but all part of, all um, prone to engaging in or prone to practising or prone to accidentally, inadvertently um, falling into the trap of is, I think, a really important conversation, expert or not. I was giggling before we actually started recording because I was having a little sort of like fantasy introduction to this episode. Um, right before we started, Dan sent me a list of cognitive biases and there was probably about 125 of them. And therefore, I was thinking of the obvious thing, the, the, the most obvious thing that Dan doesn't want is for this episode to be some kind of absolutely pointless quantitative race to get 125 cognitive biases in before uh, the end of the episode uh, with absolutely no value whatsoever, like literally just racing through them in a boring list, but for me to be giggling all the way through because I could go in at number 97 and then forgetting, no, wait a minute, we just did 97. What was number 43? And, then, and, and getting really frustrated and making the whole thing a pointless waste of time. In my fantasy, this was all very funny, and so I was giggling. But yeah, um, no, I, I mean, it, it definitely could go that way. But I think, I mean, I think if we start at the beginning and try and understand what a cognitive bias is, and I know that we have hinted at or, or talked very briefly about cognitive bias in, in the previous few episodes. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, having a kind of a springboard to go from, again, we're just going to use Wikipedia this week because it's quite, it's, quite, um, it's quite thorough. And obviously, if you are really interested in this area, it's probably the best place to start. Um, and then going, obviously, to Daniel Kahneman's book, which we have previously mentioned. Um, but 
what we're looking at is the different kind of um, tricks and pitfalls in thinking that happen where we're making assumptions and judgments and 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 coming to kind of conclusions that actually aren't based on uh, accurate data that aren't based in uh, in absolute truth if that exists and what we're trying to look at is a few examples of this rather than the entire uh, uh, you know list of 125 or whatever it is and also again like with previous weeks like with um cognitive distortions and kind of thinking patterns there's loads of overlap there's loads of i th- i think even with the list you know even though it's about cognitive bias there's there's, there's loads of um indistinctiveness if that be a word between some of the categories so uh, i you know i don't think there is an absolute um finite definite factual truthful list of what cognitive bias are and i think it's very difficult to define all of the different ways that human beings can think that they know what they're talking about or think that the conclusions they come to are accurate and rational. Um, so so I, I think it's a very difficult topic to, especially in a single episode podcast, get to the, you know, the, the ultimate truth of. I have one particular cognitive bias that fascinates me more than any of the others. Do you want me to start with the one that is obsessing me? Yes, go on then, James. So uh, just, just to the listener, what, what we're trying to say is, Please don't think of this as the be-all and end-all around cognitive bias. It's just a conversation around this topic. And no doubt we're going to get loads of things um, not 100% correct. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Disclaimer. And so this topic is just about, you know, judgment and decision-making and, um, you know, belief in our own what actually, at the end of the day, are often opinions rather than facts. That's what this is all about. Go on then, James, give us your first. And remember, if you look at Wikipedia, type in cognitive bias, you can see a list of a huge amount and you can see everything that we're talking about. Okay, my one is framing. Yeah, go on. Putting a frame around all of the available information so that you are, uh, I know you don't like this word, curating what is considered worthy of consideration with the top the the matter at hand and so firstly let me just get out of the way of the slight autiste in me the the idea that the, basically the problem i had with the small talk was i could simplify this and say that i maybe i struggle with framing and i'm doing it right now in other words i hate the idea that i am going to talk about framing and leave anything out of the frame. I hate the idea that I'm going to have a little bit of small talk about um, kidney stones and leave out any little bit of context that might help your understanding. Like if I don't give you a comprehensive history of every time I've ever had a kidney stone, uh, the the first time I realised that it was a kidney stone, the fact that I've never actually been specifically diagnosed with sodium intolerance and its personal guesswork, all of that was kind of... It's almost like when I was giving the small talk, 
I was I had a voice inside my head screaming at me, but you haven't said that you've never been formally diagnosed with the first and second opinion uh, and lab tests that sodium is the cause of the problem. You need to say that because otherwise the person listening to this might assume that and get it wrong and then have a totally inaccurate interpretation of what you're saying and most of what you're saying will be lost in translation. That's a kind of like in the in the context of the small talk at the start of the show. I, I was, in a way, trying not to frame anything. I was trying to get rid of the frame and give all the information, which is what leads me to deliver ridiculously long monologues and makes me um, stru- like do this stutter and um and er and like, where do I begin? Because I don't want to dive into something in case the other person doesn't know exactly where I am on the territory. Um, I don't know if you think as in Dan do you think that's an illustration of framing or do you think of framing as something totally outside of my frame (laughs) I mean I I'd think of it slightly differently from what I understand it would be um the news using you know the news um television news or or, um, print media using statistics and only giving you know, the statistic that is almost like the most, like, shocking or they see as the most interesting or they see as the most relevant, Um, and only from one source. So what you do, in essence, is, okay, 47% of people um, who have taken X medication have experienced this. You know, I I appreciate that that's just just one thing. So what they say, what's the information, the idea that's been given... uh, to to the the viewing or the reading public is that this forty percent forty seven percent of people experience this thing, but actually they could have said fifty three percent of people who take this medication don't experience X side effect, and so then from that information that you're given in that moment, the fifty three percent not experiencing something, if you had that fact, if you had that piece of information given to you from that study then you would conclude, potentially, that, yeah, you know, um, more more people benefit from this drug. Whereas if you heard the 47% experience this side effect, you might think, gosh, a lot of people might not benefit from this drug. So it's making a conclusion from being given one piece of information or one set of pieces of information presented in a certain way. So in essence, there's some overlap with what you said. But I think, you know, that that framing, that idea that you're not giving all of the information that is available to make a conclusion or you're giving the information in a way that is to push you to make a conclusion. Um, And, you know, with the framing effect, I think there's, um, uh, uh, you know, if you again, if you look down the long list of these, there's lots of different um, suggestion. um, What would you call it? uh, Examples that could fall into that framing. Um, So it might be a part. It might be an idea that you are given all the information, but the individual chooses to look at one piece of information over the others that are provided. You know, one that perhaps already, you know, fits with their um, idea of what they think of medications more generally. They cause problems. If you think medications cause problems, if that's part of your kind of internal belief system, you'd always look at the, the problematic side effects, even if you're given all of the information. I think weirdly, if I was to try and present that same thing, there's a there's a drug that has just over fifty percent of 
the people who tried it had a, um, a positive outcome and just under 50% had a negative side effect. And I have to present that information. If I'm writing it down, I find it quite easy to organise my thoughts, be concise, read through it, cut out half so that it's exactly what I want to convey in a concise form. But I definitely can't do that speaking as every single one of you, the singular listener, will know from having listened to me over many hours of this podcast and taking um, far too much time and too many words to talk about something because of my reluct because of my desperation to try and get all the context in and and ever since you met me Dan you have been using the you've been sort of there's a a running joke that every single story I tell starts in 1993 because the, the joke is that there's nothing I can say about the present without building up at least 30 years <laughs> to exactly. give a, an idea of how did we get here. So like how how did we get to this drug that has uh, just over 50% positive and 50%, just under 50% negative outcome? Well, we need to go back to 1993 to when the person who has just authorised the drug was uh, in school and a teacher said something that was very influential to him and it stuck. And if you don't know that, then you can't possibly understand why it's the 53, 47% uh, <laughs> ratio that we have today in 2021. And if we don't say that, then we'll just be talking past each other. Um, I think to some extent from doing this podcast, I've, I've accepted in this stage of my life the idea that any communication, but particularly verbal, um, probably, I don't know, something like 90% uh, of what I think I'm saying is not received by the other person. I, I, it's not like people only listen to 10%. It's more like 90% of context, um, intent, meaning, connotation, etc. that I think I'm conveying, I am probably not conveying um, and the listener is uh, probably projecting, the listener is distracted, the listener is doing their own framing, the listener is um, filtering what they think is the, the, the best and worst of what I'm saying. The listener can't help but remembering the things that are funny and forgetting the things that are not funny, even if the funny things are useless and the things that I s describe in an awkward excessively long way with boring words are far more useful potentially yes, i mean no, i'm not saying they are i'm just saying that if that were the case let, let me just chip in there another one that i liked and wanted to talk about and, and again you know i don't know everything about it, is this this idea um that they're calling availability bias and i think this might fit with what you're saying so um and again, I like to keep on hammering this home. There's loads of overlap and also some of them might even seem similar. But for an academic, they'd probably be able to explain it to a much higher level and probably in much clearer language. But availability bias of which we can I've got a few um, um, of the Wikipedia examples that we can fall back on if I don't 
if I don't really make sense of this, is the idea that if, if someone listened to, you know, making a decision uh, or making a um, judgment on what you have available to you at the time. So we pick, you use the random generator machine to pick any podcast that we've ever done, you know, um, and we play it to someone. And at the end of it, we ask them, you know, tell us about what you think of James. Okay. And then they will say, oh, James is long winded. He's annoying he's got an outrageous laugh okay now if we then went through all of the podcasts and went to like your best performance where you were succinct (laughs) (laughs) you know that episode where you were succinct there was no repetition um okay we went to you were succinct there was no repetition and we played uh you know uh the person that episode first i said what do you think of james and oh you know he's accurate he's succinct he's on the ball he's quick he's funny if you didn't do any of those weird long-winded odd laughs that you do you know he's um you know he's professional now if we played those two clips on different days you know to to a group of people and we compared what people thought of you and we you know kind of standardized the results and made sure that we got rid of some of the bias in the in the research we were doing we could do all of that and get these two almost different opinions of you and it's all about the availability of the information to that person if we then played that same group of people or you know swapped groups of people and had a control group to make sure that we weren't getting anything wrong the full tape unedited of each of those podcasts and then ask them the same question, they'd come up with a third set of, you know, uh, descriptors for how James was. And it's all about how we go through life making assumptions, generalisations, judgments and decisions on how we're going to behave based only on the information that we have available to us or the information that we think is the full picture. If we're then pointed out, hey, actually, both of those podcasts, James was also performing and in walks James. Now you're going to meet James in person. You get an opportunity to ask him 50 questions. And then each person would come up with a way more complete picture of what James was like. But the fact that perhaps those 50 participants, for example, didn't say when we asked them these questions, wait, I can't tell you what James is like from listening to a randomly selected podcast or a pre-chosen selected podcast or the full tapes of James on that day. I can only tell you what my opinion in this moment, on this day, having had the day that I'd had or the morning that I'd had in the context of the life that I'd had, I can't tell you what James is like at all. Now, that person would probably be most accurate. Obviously, everyone in the room would think they were annoying and full of it. And if they would probably also say, if it had started with 1993 and I had been given every piece of information. But the fact of the matter is, we will answer those questions as human beings because we like to think and we like to believe that with the information we've got, we can make rational, logical, accurate guesses and decisions on based on what we've got in front of us. So when I gave an example of my desperation sometimes to get in all of the context so that essentially as if I'm constantly trying to avoid framing at all costs uh it's it's almost like a handicap that I have to try and avoid presenting an edited version of events 
for someone to appraise in the moment based on the random way that I managed to present it first time. Firstly, in, in, in my handicap of desperately trying not to frame, I am distorting the events simply by, let's say, irritating the other person with my lack of concision and my umming and ahhing and my excess of information that I'm bombarding them with. So whatever I then say, they're probably irritated and don't want to hear it anyway, no matter what it is. So me trying to combat framing in my present, presenting of information is already failed. Essentially, my question is, it's impossible to not frame things. It's impossible to give all the context, as I've proven my whole life. <laughs> 30 years later, <laughs> like a jump cut from 1993 to today, um, I've come to the conclusion that I have to be more concise and not worry about the things that I leave out and not worry about the person not having the full picture. And I can just give someone a little 10% uh, of the story and let them react to that. And there still might be some value in it, even though they don't know the other 90% to inform how they react. Essentially, we're saying framing bad. <laughs> uh, don't frame. But I've just spent my whole life trying not to frame and it hasn't got me anywhere and I'm essentially trying to frame in life. Maybe, maybe. Um, I, th I think there is, in the example that you're giving, you know, the idea that trying to give people all of the facts and all of the information with which that they can make a conclusion that would be the conclusion that you hope them to make from the story that you're telling them, you know, there's there's something, I guess, honourable in that. But the the missing the fact that even if you gave all of those all of the information you possibly could which would i'm guessing take a lifetime almost for anything especially when you're talking about something so complex as the physiology anatomy eating behaviors chemistry and context of you know kidney stones was it sorry yeah so even even a a, a kidney specialist who's in his or her 80s and has spent devoted their lifetime to the topic, they're only 10% up to speed because they don't necessarily know every physical fact about the property of salt. They don't know everything I've ever done to my body which might inform how my brain functions, my kidneys function, etc. So they'd have to know my entire life history in order to really be up to speed on what's happening when I eat a pizza. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, with a little bit of exaggeration from us both here, but, you know, to make a point, like it would take so long to give all that information, even with all that on the table, you know, all the folds and folders that a person would need to make the absolute perfect conclusion there's still, you know, human interpretation in all of that and all of the entire list of bias that you can, you can uh, biased thinking and biased um, uh, cognitions that you can fall into when interpreting that information. So you trying to, it's not that there's a stupidity about it, but there's a futility to it. It's a waste of time. And as you said, actually, people will become more irritated the more information you put on the table when all really... All you wanted to say was something along the lines of, oh, yeah, I sometimes get kidney stones and I know that, well, I think that salt affects it. Um, I had a really salty pizza last night and I was a bit worried I might get kidney stones again, but I seem to be okay so far. Thanks for asking. 
<laughs> small talk, small, small talk. <laughs> do, 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 small talk. Uh, um, yeah, so like, you know, the framing effect. Wikipedia calls the framing effect, it's a cognitive bias where people decide on options based on whether the options are presented with positive or negative connotations. So it's, it, you know, what you were talking about, I think it's a different part of framing. There are, you know, there are loads of different examples with loads of overlap, so I might be wrong. But if you'd have said, you know, if you'd have put the story in a in a kind of a light or a context that suggested that you were scared or worried, the person might have interpreted it as a kind of like a negative story. But if you'd have done it, you know, used different words, you'd uh, um, uh, kind of presented it in a slightly different language, they might have interpreted it as you just had a success story. Managed to eat a salty pizza without getting kidney stones, or is on is on the edge because he's worried he might get kidney stones. So like, what? So so what is that? You know, I mean, but again, it's it's. Uh, I don't know if it exactly falls into the framing effect, but I, I see where you're going with. That that's something else with this that the the um the example of the. Like, pretend I'm talking to a doctor about the kidney stone, and I don't even if it is this hypothetical perfect kidney doctor who's heard my entire life history and spent their whole life studying kidneys I'm essentially trying to present all that information hoping that they will simply have as accurate as possible a view on me that is that's kind of a way of presenting the framing bias that's maybe not the most obvious let me just get, let me give another example. If I say something like uh, I'm in favour of free speech, well, in 2021, it's in the climate of articles in the news and things like that is probably quite a, um, a uh, provocative thing to say. But let's rewind a couple of years and I say I'm in favour of spe- free speech to a room of people. Probably most people would think, yeah, so. There might be one person in the room who's about to sort of say, oh, but what about incitement to violence? And they'll have some statistic in mind about people who get raped or whatever. And then the, and then the rest of the people in the room will be thinking, um, all right, it's Christmas Day. Let's just keep the subject to the weather. Let's not talk about rape. But just the statement of I'm in favour of free speech in that context, it's kind of like, so what? You've, you've just said something unremarkable. If, however, if, if you as a journalist were writing an article about me and you started that article by saying, in the climate of right-wing pundits viciously attacking the left for the perception of social justice seeming like a kind of Soviet-era censorship. James Hall is a fierce (laughs) supporter of free speech. We met, blah, 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 and then you continue with the interview. You've basically said James Hall is angry and right-wing. That's like the first thing you've said to introduce me to someone, Um, which would be totally inaccurate in the sense that uh, you, as the reporter did not see any anger in me i'm just just, let's just this is all hypothetical so i i'm i'm in this hypothetical interview i did not get angry and secondly let's just go on my voting history to conclude that i am not inclined towards right-wing views 
But if you if you if you start an, if you write an article and you say, uh, in, in, well, I'm not, I'm, I was about to repeat myself there. But uh, the, you, if you if you if you give the context that suggests that right wing people are angrily fighting for their views of free speech to be the predominant ones in the culture, and then you associate me with that. You're not lying because let's say that you can quote verbatim something I say in that interview, the words, I am in favour of free speech. That is an accurate factual quote. But if you but I'm just but this but surely that's a good example of framing in the sense that you as a manipulative journalist in this either an incompetent or manipulative journalist are either accidentally or deliberately setting me up to seem like an like a frenzied angry kind of Ben Shapiro type character. Um, alternatively, uh, you could equally take that same quote and frame it completely differently and make out that I am some kind of extreme hippie. That you could, and I think that's, um, yeah, that, that summarises the uh, framing bias quite quite well. But I think that's sort of like a normal example. I think the example I gave of wanting to include all the context of everything in order to avoid framing, it's kind of like rather than an example of framing, it's an example of me trying not to frame. Yeah, I'd agree. But also I think in your complex psychological reasoning for wanting to give every piece of information you possibly can there's it's probably trying to avoid a variety of bias rather than just the framing so if we go back to the simply psychology article on cognitive bias which i i highly recommend because it's you know got some lovely graphics in it it's not too long <laughs> and it hasn't got 125 on the list <laughs> one of the one of the well known bias that i think is coming that you know is coming more at first it came from kahneman's studies in the 1960s and 70s all of what we're talking about it's almost like daniel kahneman started this uh, revolution in understanding of human decision making and human information processing and so he he started all of this so again thinking fast and thinking slow or um, Thinking Slow and Thinking Fast, whichever way around it is. A really good book to read um, if you want to really understand the context and you know where this all came from. But confirmation bias is one of the big ones. That's, that's slipping into the uh, modern, you know, the, in, into to common language every day. I think it's something that most people have heard of. Confirmation bias refers to the tendency to interpret new information as confirmation of your pre-existing beliefs and opinions. It's the idea that when we get something new, we, we hold on to it or we focus on it or we use it to confirm what we think we already knew. So you could go searching for, not necessarily deliberately, it might start uh, deliberately, but... It doesn't have to continue to be deliberate. It could become a habit and therefore uh, something that you're not doing consciously. You basically go searching for information that you like. So, for example, if you like a particular political party, you might read 
Liberation in France or The Guardian in the UK and you might keep on reading that because you have a particular view on how uh, governments should spend money and articles in that newspaper tend to confirm your own bias but the 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 nuance with this is not like it's not necessarily as it's not as 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 dumb as basically finding a lie in a newspaper like an an obviously stupid newspaper article and saying ha that confirms my view that the other person thinks is stupid and therefore they think so what you're basically saying is i have a stupid view i found something stupid that looks like a fact because it's written on paper in a formal font and i'm holding this up in front of your face to show that it's my stupid view isn't actually stupid because how could it possibly be stupid if both i and the institution share it that's kind of like the almost like the the straw man the the, the less oftenly come across version of events what's more likely is that the newspaper won't be a stupid well not necessarily it's more likely but this is also likely the newspaper won't be a sort of like you know cheap tag tabloid brag with bad bad journalism it will be a highly respected newspaper and the highly respected newspaper will have thoroughly researched a topic and the thorough the thorough researching of the topic will incorporate carefully conducted studies the carefully conducted studies will have sensibly condensed statistics and so all of it is very rigorously and professionally presented in the highly prestigious newspaper and the educated person who has a bias will seek out that newspaper and will hold up the article in front of you and say, aha, that opinion of mine that I had is shared in this highly regarded newspaper and I'm waving it in front of you so that you can see. It's not just me who has the opinion. Look at the words printed formally on this page in stylish, sophisticated graphic design. This is not some um, amateur conspiracy theory blog. This is the proper newspaper. But in all of that, there are a whole load of biases at play, even though the facts are probably right, the facts may be framed in the sense that here are 16 accurate facts that we're presenting to you, and over there are 80 equally accurate facts that we're hiding from you. And so the person using the newspaper article to confirm that they're right is essentially using a confirmation bias to prove nothing other than they have a, a bias and so does this newspaper. That doesn't mean that the, 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 the newspaper article is invalid. The newspaper article, like I said, could be very professionally done and it can be a useful source of information and it can be something valuable to take on board. It's just not the whole picture and it can't be used to confirm that your um, cockabrain... No, what's this? <laughs> that your, that your hairbrain idea is actually truthful and factual simply because you can cut out a piece of paper that looks official and says, yeah, that says the ab- same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, 
In, in, in essence, uh, a couple of like real real world examples that I think everyone's pretty familiar with now is if you think about Facebook and social media and the fact that each time you like something, you know, or follow something, the algorithms, which of course we don't see, you know, they, we don't have like a, a monthly, what do you call it, like update on what your algorithm will show you next month or what your alg- how your algorithm has been changed. But we click, we like, we... Um, what, what, what do I seem to... You know, so say you click everything that is about cats um, looking cute and people who love pets and veganism. That's, that's the, the flow of information that you're going to get. So any newspaper articles or opinion pieces that are around cats or veganism that's what you're going to keep getting in your news feed so each time that information pops up on your news feed or your instagram feed or your facebook page it's going to confirm the things that you think are true around those topics or it's going to give you a kind of a conversational understanding around those topics which you in you know with confirmation bias add to your growing list of facts and information and evidence and research that what you believe about animals veganism and whatever topic it is is true and you know the these you know social media algorithms in fact are kind of making us less informed about a topic because in essence we're never seeing the other side to the coin we're never seeing an alternate opinion we're never seeing alternate facts that are presented we're not getting anywhere near the truth because on the whole what we're looking at is the you know the things most supporting our own arguments which of course is incredibly dangerous and as this article points out is polarizing not just politically but um in in all kinds of different you know in different ways socially and politically um so there's that and then it gives us some other examples as well and this hold is on one... hold on before you move on i just yes. like to react to that because that was a good example and maybe in retrospect um uh if if i were to rewind the clock with hindsight we might come on to hindsight bias i knew it all along in quotes um, <laughs> with hindsight i probably would have um, approach confirmation bias by saying, Dan, can you give me an example of social media bubbles, maybe using cats and veganism? And you would have given that nice little thing that neatly describes what confirmation bias is. It's you input that you like this into Facebook. The algorithm gives more of that back to you. You're not consciously aware of the algorithm all the time and therefore you think that because you think something and then you see that confirmed in the world you're you must be on the right path because the world and your opinions match up so and you neatly gave that example and that would be the the ideal way to to introduce cognitive bias rather than my excessive story about the newspaper involving you know details of typography and things but the reason that i gave it now and now would be the right time to have given it, not before you gave the cat Facebook example, is because there's this kind of snobbishness, I think, in the sense that it's easy for someone who, can, who might consider themselves educated to dismiss that example of saying, stupid person, so stupid they don't understand that Facebook has algorithms, stupidly like stupid things like cats and 
vegan cats or whatever and stupidly looks at <laughs> vegan cats on Facebook because they're stupid and then stupidly comes to the stupid confirmation bias stupid conclusion that because they have their stupid opinion about vegan cats being cute and they're stupid enough to not know that Facebook has algorithms and therefore they're too stupid to know that when they see vegan cats in their feed it's actually an algorithm and not a confirmation that their uh, preferences are absolutely the right ones to have. Therefore, all of that is stupid, and that's just a stupid person, and that's not me, and I'm not a fool to confirmation bias. I'm saying that because it's easy to be snobbish about fluffy cats, and because it's easy to say that kind of like intelligent people are up to speed to some extent with social media algorithms even though the like the the people who work in silicon valley don't use the products that they sell sometimes i hear uh, because they know how dangerous and addictive and problematic they are um, and they know that they are not above the algorithm in in the sense that even though they know exactly how it works they're not going to use that service because they know that they themselves are only a mere mortal and could easily be, even with what they know about it, could be sucked into um, confirmation bias, bubbles, conspiracy, whatever, fake news. Echo chambers is a, is a really popular term for this kind of thing as well, that you're only hearing back what you put out there. So, you know, you click like, 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 like. Um, on all the topics that you're interested in, but it doesn't give you any conflicting opinions, doesn't give you any alternative worldviews. And so the more that you hear that echo back to you, the more it's reinforced that your ideas, your opinions, your thoughts, your facts, as you see them, your beliefs become um, uh, truer, more enforced, more ingrained. But it's easy to be snobbish and to say that this only applies to stupid people whose intellect ah, cannot, whose yes, intellectual James. capacity is not capable of anything beyond gormlessly flicking through pictures of vegan cats. I don't think vegan cats exist, but... In fact, there's, there's something called the curse of knowledge, when better informed people find it extremely difficult to think about problems from the perspective of lesser informed people. Um, so, and there's a couple of other of the um, cognitive biases that would, would fit in with that. You know, the idea that because you're well informed, you've got a master's degree in clinical research, you think that others who don't have a master's degree in clinical research couldn't possibly have interpreted things to the same level and understanding that one has. But yeah, but that's that's different. Um, so yes, I concur with that. But I, so like I ha let's say I I have a PhD in being fabulous, and so firstly I think I'm superior to everyone else. Like no one else could possibly be as fabulous as me because how could they be if they don't have my perfect PhD? I'm the perfect person with the PhD, therefore I'm fabulous, and no one else is unless they. And I don't believe this will happen, as is, which should be implicit, but I will um, crassly say it nevertheless. Uh, I don't believe that they will ever be able to get the same PhD in being wonderful and perfect because I think I'm better than everyone else, so how could anyone else get the same PhD? Therefore, I can't possibly imagine what it must be like to be one of those stupid people. That's one thing. But the other thing is thinking, because everyone else is so stupid, they're the ones who are biased, and I'm not because I'm perfect. 
Yeah, and there's and everyone I think now knows the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'll I'll just go over it, which is kind of like the opposite of what we just mentioned. Another cognitive bias: um, the tendency for unskilled individuals, potentially read stupid, to overestimate their own ability, and the tendency of experts to underestimate their own ability. Meaning that the stupider you are, the less you realise that you're stupid and the more intelligent you think you are. Which, of course, that mixed in with some of the others, you know, the the confirmation bias effect means that potentially the least informed people on the internet think that they know the most and therefore, you know, by extension, the least informed people in society think that they have the most accurate, correct and right ideas because because none of these biases maybe even in their, their vocabulary or their understanding. So how could they possibly um, counteract the effect of different bias when they don't know about them? Well, oh, that's that's pretty that's pretty that's a pretty good summary actually. I was I would like to say kind of as an aside, but yet totally relevant. If let's say none of these biases existed and everyone was perfect, um, there would be no comedy in the sense that like, when something is funny, it is um, that there's a gap between the reality and the thing that's being presented, but at the same time there's also some truth in it and that makes it extremely funny. So if you take co- a cognitive bias and you exaggerate it, but you also... You, you exaggerate something that is rooted in reality, then you are doing comedy. And if everyone was perfect and you kind of like, let's say you took a comedy like Only Fools and Horses, an old British sitcom, and you take a character who has a an elevated opinion of himself. Um, that was a common trope in British sitcoms. People who had an elevated opinion of their abilities or their social status or whatever. None, that wouldn't be funny if everyone was perfect because you'd just be watching it thinking, but but no one is like this. This couldn't happen. This is just stupid. This is a pointless TV programme. Next, and you'd, you'd change the channel to the news and the news reader would say, everything went well again today because people are perfect. <laughs> Which is, I think, the basis of the beginning of the Lego movie. However, the problem at the moment is that there is not... In my view, there is not enough comedy. There, the situations are not made light of. Everything is... Every, the, 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 um, the bub, the, I think in, in the um, aftermath of isolation to various degrees during the pandemic, there were uh, intensified bubbles. The, all these cognitive biases were exaggerated by the conditions people found themselves in. And yet simultaneously, um, I don't entirely know that there was necessarily enough comedy to essentially make sense of that. So in other words, if you have a, a political bias, where is the comedy to exaggerate and kind of shatter your illusion of being correct because when it's presented to you in an exaggerated joke that is based on the truth, 
then you're more likely to have the illusion of your bias shattered. But if that joke doesn't exist, if it's, a, if, if it's simply a case of another person having a different view shouting back at you and being angry with you thinking you're wrong and you're angry with them thinking they're wrong, where's the comedy? No one's making it into a joke. No one is... Um, what's the word when you... There's tension in the air, you do a verb... The tension is gone. <laughs> Disseminate. Well, you know, like some people do that naturally. Like they walk into a room and it's all tense, and they can do small talk, small talk, duh, 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 duh. and then suddenly the tension is gone, and everyone is suddenly hugging each other when pre- five minutes ago they were enemies. No, yeah, not disseminates, dissipates, something like that. That'll do. Okay, so um, yeah, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, have you finished on that one? <laughs> um, even if I hadn't, I think you should just plough on with uh, what you wanted to say. OK. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, fair enough. Um, uh, it's just I never get the chance to throw back. It's normally me behaving badly in these podcasts, so I love it when I can uh, uh, throw back a point, a valid point that you have validly made to um, to highlight my bad behaviour in the past. And I don't think that even was bad behaviour, but I think it was just uh... no, no. I think you're right. I think what happened there. There must be some kind of bias here. I like attention bias or something like that, I managed to lose focus and therefore believe that what you were saying <laughs> wasn't that relevant. And because, <laughs> because I'd lost focus, I decided that you should finish. And then when I finally managed to tune back in, I wasn't sure what it was you were talking about anyway. So the only thing I could do was say, have you finished? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that. I mean, that is the difficult, like attention, yeah, attention. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important one, actually, because, you know, I think... I think I, whether that's there on the big list, but the idea that actually we have um, a kind of an unconscious function whereby, for whatever reasons, you know, context, how we're feeling, how we physically are that day, what's been going on for us, whether we've got some other priorities on our mind, we, we either will or won't focus our attention on what's being said to us and therefore the actual message we get and the actual information that we manage to pick up will... Um, inevitably be completely varied on all those um pendable variables so yeah so i i just i just definitely fell into one of the bias traps and thinking that what you were saying was not relevant <laughs> sorry james um would you like to move on to the um absolutely and you don't need to feel guilty hindsight it is, bias it is it is objectively correct to move on right now um, one of the interesting last points I'm just going to say uh, before we do move on uh, on uh, confirmation bias is something that I read a couple of times recently and I'd like to know more about. And it's um, apparently the police, when they uh, first choose a suspect in a murder or, or a serious crime, once they've found that this person could be a suspect, they focus more attention on finding evidence to prove their theory that this person is guilty rather than looking for any other person that could also be guilty of this crime. And that is how, obviously, miscarriages of justice take place. Um, But it's something that, you know, has been studied and explored. Hindsight biased. Hindsight bias refers to the tendency to perceive past events as more predictable than they actually were. 
They're both cognitive and motivational explanations for why we ascribe so much certainty to knowing the outcome of an event only once the event is completed. Um, like uh, your your sports team loses at the sports they were playing and you say, I knew that was going to happen. That's the good example. Oh, rather, that's the, that's, that's the, the simple, appropriate sensible example but is this also an example and i'm and i know i'm deliberately um wondering if i'm going left field or not if i were to say for example i knew that in previous episodes of this podcast i was long-winded and used too many words you did you just didn't help me be concise in other words dan it was your fault and in hindsight i can see that now because what i'm actually doing is taking information that in the past I was long-winded recognizing the truth in it but pretending that I had that view all along and that and because I didn't actually have that view all along I have to therefore make up some fake reason as to why I would have had that view all along otherwise why would I have had that otherwise it's not believable that I had that view and it shouldn't be believable because I didn't have it um, yeah, that's that's one way of looking at it, but that sounds like quite a conscious way of manipulating so that perhaps you would influence how other people thought about your integrity. Yeah, and your <laughs> and your ability to know what was going on, your your kind of grasp of the situation. And you know, but then someone might want to challenge you by saying, Well then why didn't you say, Dan, you're gonna have to keep me on track with this, here I go, you know? Um but yeah, a lot a lot of these biases could be considered to be a kind of like an unconscious mechanism by which we do maintain our own integrity. And so, in terms of like mental, in terms of mental well being and kind of like psychological groundedness, we could say that a lot of these bias might be there in order to help us maintain our sense of self. You know, you know the, the the confirmation bias. If all of us were open to all of the different alternate worldviews and alternate opinions and alternate uh, sources of information, potentially the world would be a much better place. But how, as an individual, are we able to process all of that? That complete uncertainty about a topic isn't it much more grounding and confirming and safe to say that we know that we know stuff, that we are certain of things, that we are, we understand things, that we have the facts, we have the evidence, and other people with alternate opinions don't know what they're talking about? I would say no. Why would you say no? Because it's not true, and if you have to tell yourself that to feel okay, you will eventually come across a situation where the reality that you don't know everything is starkly presented to you and to try and uphold the illusion that you understand the world and everything will be ludicrous in that situation and so you end up in denial or and things get um that that kind of cognitive dissonance causes you to displace things you get in Jungian language you get a complex yeah absolutely um, and wouldn't wouldn't you think that that is more likely when you let go of knowing? Yeah, I you know. think it's far more liberating to say, I know nothing, but 
I am an active human being and participator in society. So um, partly through being forced to try and know things and partly because I enjoy the game anyway, because I'm a human, I will have a go at uh, understanding things and I will be a good sport about it. I will cooperate with people. Um, I will then take some time out on my own to indulge personal uh, discovery. And then I will go back into society to uh, see if I can get some feedback. I will empathize, but not too much. I will keep everything in measure and I will enjoy the whole process. And I will pause to meditate in between. <laughs> And, and from your privileged position, what, do you think that that is applicable to the majority of humans? Um, I, I don't know. This is the question that we asked last week in relation to feeling a sense of agency and control, like, for example, with Viktor Frankl in the concentration camps. Can anyone in that situation, Viktor Frankl their way through it and come out and write a book about it? Or would another person, given, an, given a very similar life history and exactly the same conditions, would they throw their hands up and give up and, and just be miserable until they die in the concentration camp? I don't know that. And I don't know the extent to which... I mean, I certainly think everyone can be the best they can be. And I certainly think that most people are not the best they can be most of the time and therefore just try and be better. I so in other words, I think it's pointless of me or anyone to try and say that any given person should be able to do this or cannot do that or you know requires these genes or needs to have had an education or anything like that i just think that everyone can get better at how they organize their mind and therefore <laughs> every single episode beyond the cliche that the listener thinks that the, the listener introduced us to uh Every single episode, my conclusion is, yes, you can pull your socks up and flow. That's not to say that, yes, you can be exactly the same as me. That's not to say, yes, you can solve all your problems yourself without any help or anything like that. It's just to say that, yes, everyone can improve. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree, but I think everyone can improve on their critical thinking. Everyone can expand the variety of knowledge that they expose themselves to and everyone can be you know has the potential to be less biased by you know uh, employing critical thinking when making decisions and making judgments of situations and people and facts and sources but not everyone has had the privilege that you or I have had in learning to get to a position whereby they would even be able to uh, take on board some of what we're saying in this podcast. You know, um, we'd be hippie, lefto, pinko, liberals. <laughs> By even saying any of this nonsense that the the uh, 
um, mainstream sheeple, uh, uh, popular media are, are putting out there. So I, I think it's really difficult to say that everyone has capacity at every point in their lives to become more critical in a positive Can you, way. Do you have, when you say that, do you have a, like, even a sort of like little Britain-type character in your mind of who cannot think critically? I'm, I mean, don't, don't use a little Britain character if it's... I'm not, I'm not trying to make it silly. I just mean like um, sometimes when people say not everyone can blah, 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 that's the polite way of saying the truth, which is, in my head, I'm thinking of some thicko. <laughs> in my head, I'm thinking of Vicky Pollard from Little Britain, and there's no way she can do critical thinking. Okay, so, you know, for our international listeners who haven't seen Little Britain, Vicky Pollard is what might be considered a kind of a... Um, uh, you know, potentially in, in Britain, like a, a lower class or a working class, tracksuit wearing, ignorant, uh, selfish, self-serving, lying, petty criminal who uh, has no real time for anyone else and is only interested in what she can get and what she wants. She's a very, she's like a comedic caricature of someone who might have be, uh, you know, less privileged than the typical person and always has a can of beer in her hand, always smoking a fag, always answers back. And her catchphrase is... What is her catchphrase, James? I can't remember now. I'm, I'm confusing her with Catherine Tate's character who says, am I bothered? But that's not... Oh, it's very, part. very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, when I'm thinking about, you know, Vicky... Pollard or you know who Vicky Pollard is meant to represent do I think that she is incapable of critical thinking um well I suppose it goes back to my previous point that actually cognitive biases or bias cognitive bias in um protect us from something so there you know if you're looking at it in like factory is someone incapable of no but might someone need to be supported and trained and educated in order to be able to start to employ some of the critical thinking techniques and kind of unpick some of these bias and see alternate points of view now if you think about that person's emotional and social state and also if you think about the hierarchy of needs you know people need to be safe people need to have food people need to have water people need to have some kind of purpose you might be starting to try and unpick and take away some of those things you know that person person's purpose and that person's sense of self before they would be able to have the kind of emotional and psychological and cognitive capacity to be able to do that so it's not that they're completely incapable of but the process of getting someone who is you know whose main um day-to-day business is self-preservation in an environment uh, you know if we assume if it makes some assumptions which of course is a bias about the character Vicky Pollard's living situation. She doesn't have access to lots of money. She doesn't have access to positive role models in the same way that middle-class people do. Or um, she doesn't have access, perhaps, to you know the reading materials or the um, mentorship and education 
that actually other people have access to. And when she is presented with those options, she doesn't, hasn't been taught how to engage with them. She hasn't been taught how to make best use of them. And using all of the biases that, that the long list has, there's a variety of reasons why she would make a choice to not go for uh, further education, to not go and seek help, you know, because of trust issues, mental health issues, um, psychological or emotional uh, conditioning. So, so the option of taking someone from potentially their let's like lowest functioning self you know lowest functioning thinking self to someone who can critically think is a massively long process and if it was as easy as that then things like the um legal system the social services the mental health services education system they'd all be 100 percent successful in getting people from a state of whatever ignorance they're at to a state of high functioning and that is not the case it is not as simple as that so possible yes but easy, no. Oh, yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree with all of that. In fact, there was a wonderful story that one of the Jungian gods told last week, and you'll like this because I think it actually happened around 1993, so I don't need to give 30 years of build-up. <laughs> nice. um, so uh, this, uh, this is a, a podcast that I like called This Jungian Life, and one of them was talking about when she used to work as a social worker in the Bronx in New York. And she said that there was a case of a woman who lived on an estate. There was lots of crime. She had a young boy, a son, and she was worried about his future. And she was on a very low income. So she had a whole load of obstacles. And she was prescribed antidepressants and her kind of her reaction was or rather the 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 people prescribing the the antidepressants were basically saying well if you're still depressed then we obviously need to up the dose because it's not working well enough and the the Jungian god who uh, was at the time a social worker not a Jungian god yet at this point in her life um, she claimed that she was at the bottom of the pecking order of all the people making these decisions and so she she didn't really have any input in this but even as a junior and a, a, a social worker at the bottom of the hierarchy of um, all these people involved in this case she thought but hang on a minute why that, like this person is not depressed in the sense that it's not like there's it's not like there's some kind of um, uh, impossible to understand psychological complexity that is causing a mental disorder in this person. She is reacting in the obvious way to a difficult life. And there's no way that that can be fixed, so to speak, mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And she she claimed that no one could. No, she she seemed to think that no one else could see that. And they all seemed to believe that. Well, let me simplify. You know, I, I'm I'm the person who prescribes the antidepressants. Well, I don't get depressed, so there's no reason for one to get depressed. Therefore. If you're depressed or stressed or anxious or whatever, there must be some weird chemical thing that's gone wrong. So take this pill and correct it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
What you were talking about there is the, a kind of what can only be really described or is, or is described as a kind of a reactive depression. You are feeling low, you are feeling down, you're feeling hopeless or negative due to the circumstances that surround you. I mean, in modern day practice in 20, 2000 onwards, you know, not too long after that 1993 story, we probably would have recognised that quite quickly. Um, I would have hoped that like a well-trained psychologist or psychiatrist would have recognised that at the time. But the fact of the matter is, you know, um, medicating that was never going to work. Obviously, it's a, in essence, a social problem. And that is why, you know, social workers probably would have had a much better understanding of how that, you know, um, living situation and the circumstances around that um, woman's life would have affected her. And, and 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 those feelings were absolutely valid and trying to take them away with a pill is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but yes. There are obviously those who will say that, well, the obvious problem is capitalism because the pharmaceutical companies are the rich, powerful elite in society. Their only objective is to keep prescribing more drugs to make more money for their jets and uh, their advancement in the space race to beat Elon Musk and uh, Richard Branson to colonize Mars. So it is in their interest to keep feeding this woman more um, pills that get paid for into their pockets. And if we just uh, annihilate capitalism and bring in socialism or communism, then we can actually focus on the needs of the people rather than the profit margins of the elite. And so whilst I'm not going to criticise the logic of an argument like that, I do disagree with it. I think that this is an incomplete picture to say that the world can only be seen in terms of flow of money into the pockets of the 1% of billionaires. But that's not the same thing as saying that the, the, the 1% of the 1% of the world's richest elite is not a problem. I'm not saying that it's not a problem. I'm saying that you can't just frame the world. This is, this is, this is another example of framing. This is why I'm saying all this, because... Um, if, for example, you, you, you identify... Like, there's a real problem in the world. There's 1% of 1% that have all the money, and then there's billions of other people who are struggling to the point where they are depressed because they're living on a deprived estate with lots of crime, and they're a single parent with a son, and they're worried... They're stressed to the point of despair at the idea that their son will end up in a, a gang and in prison before being 30 and on top of that their shift work on a zero hours contract isn't enough to feed the family and all the rest of it means that they have all kinds of problems and depression and the opportunistic drug companies are pouncing on this as an example as, as an opportunity to sell drugs in order to line their pockets and beat Richard Branson to colonizing Mars um, that is a real problem but it, it, but to, to immediately jump on that problem and say, well, obviously, the thing I don't like, capitalism, is the problem, and the thing I do like, socialism or communism, is the solution, therefore there's nothing else to say, and if you think otherwise, you're more stupid than me, and I'm not stupid. Um, that is a form of confirmation bias. But it's not... 
but to 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 criticize that view it's just to say that the framing the reactionary framing is an manifestation of an of a of a cognitive bias do you agree um <laughs> confirm <laughs> for me <laughs> i'm looking for confirmation bias right now <laughs> you, you you raised a number of interesting points there what you ask me if i agree with no, I'm joking. I'm not asking if you agree. That was kind of like leading up to the joke of confirmation bias. Oh, actually, in, in essence, then, from the story around the medication and capitalism, drugs companies, I, I think one, I think this some, can kind of summarise all of that by maybe suggesting that you've highlighted a problem in that when we are faced with a problem or when we are faced with something that causes an emotional reaction or a kind of a guttural response um, towards a situation, we will, and this is part of the bias, look for something and someone to blame. And often we will look for something and someone that is powerful and is above our um, level of being able to intervene. And due to that we will forget the fact that we do have some agency. So, you know, whether it's capitalism or the drugs companies or the society or, you know, the banks, that's the problem. That's where the situation is. We can't do anything about that. And holding on to that is is negating the fact that there are loads of solutions to smaller elements of that problem that you can start to, as an individual you know, you take on and do. And I think that actually might take us to quite a useful um, segue, you know, maybe pathway towards our conclusions for today, um, which is thinking about how how do we as individuals, you know, because even if we had a five-part mini-series on all of the confirmation bias that uh, exist we would still need to somehow conclude how you deal with all 125 currently recognised cognitive bias. And also, what I did notice is that we didn't, and uh, apologise to the listener for this, perhaps we didn't give enough structure to what the bias is, where the research is that introduced and understood this bias, how they've proven that it exists, and um, how we see it in the real world. You know, we, we... we weren't particularly process-driven, I think is the right word. It might not be. We weren't brilliant at that today. But hopefully what we have done is like introduced like the area of cognitive bias and all the different things that we could be doing that mean that the decisions that we're coming to and the understanding that we have of the facts in front of us um, actually can be tainted or twisted or evaluated in a way that means that we're, we're not using best available evidence and perhaps that's actually affecting us negatively um, in many ways. So in looking at how we might be able to undo some of that damage or counteract some of it, we have to look at what what we, you know, what practical steps can we take. The most the most obvious one is to have recognition of this and to start thinking about our thinking. And in effect, that's what all of our podcasts are about. It's thinking about thinking, metacognition. How am I thinking today? You know, what am I feeling? What's getting in the way of me having time to make a slower 
decision or what's getting in the way of me having space and time to think about the different options and weigh them up. Um, something that we used a lot in eating disorders um, uh, treatment and therapy was pros and cons lists. You know, what are the pros and cons of any one decision around something even as simple as maybe having lunch that afternoon? And using that to see, you know, what is the evidence and then unpicking it a bit about what the best option for me is. Obviously, we can't do that with anything, but actually giving ourselves a kind of a challenge to say, you know, for a month or for a few weeks or in a certain context, like at work or when talking to your partner or when trying to make arrangements for a specific uh, event or situation, how can I try something different? How can I think about how I'm making decisions around this and how can I give myself... um, uh, an opportunity to see some of the pitfalls in the decision making that that might be going on here. Anything to say on that, James? So far, I would like to confirm that what you hold dear within this bubble of our podcast is not going challenged right now. Okay, cool, cool. So, think, <laughs> so thinking about thinking is is sort of our take-home message from all of this and most of our podcasts Um, and I found a little uh, list of four things which you might like James Um, and and it's it's called a multifactorial process a acknowledging the limitations of our memory trying to keep in mind that we can't remember all of the information we can't remember all of the situations and all of the facts that will lead to a completely perfect rational decision B, seeking perspective whilst you're making decisions. So asking for others' opinions, looking for other evidence. C, being able to self-critique, learning how to challenge yourself and challenge your own thinking. And of course, the more that you do that and the more that you learn about doing that, the better it will get, hopefully. And D, choosing strategies to prevent cognitive error so thinking about different ways like you know as simple as the pros and cons list or you know keeping a diary of your decision making process at work or starting to think of different ways that you can ask opinions and bring people in um, to help inform your decision making process Um, and, and also being focused on trying to have an unbiased decision making process and an un biased judgment of the information that you're processing having that as a kind of a a motto i will try to be non-judgmental i will try to be unbiased within what i'm doing and i will seek alternate opinions in order to make decisions that's probably the best advice that i'm able to give you are you able to chip in at all let me frame it this way this is not what you want to hear but i feel massively incapable of giving any advice because let let me give you an example so let's say someone comes away with this with the main takeaway being i need to be more critical and not just accept received wisdom as a reinforcement of my beliefs that could easily lead someone into conspiracy theories because someone who is a conspiracy theorist is to some extent thinking critically in other words they don't believe the news they don't believe institutions they don't believe generally recognized facts because they are above 
just simply consuming all of this uncritically. They are critical. So in other words, um, know the latest election of whatever country was not fair. There must have been something behind the scenes because I think critically, I do not accept the result of an election. Another problem is um, trying to not be biased collectively. So we as a team are going to try and not be biased and therefore we're all on the same page and we become tribal and we all become susceptible to affinity bias because we all influence and nudge each other to go in the same direction and deviation from the herd will not be tolerated. So if we accidentally get anything wrong, then we will all get it wrong and we will replicate that wrongness and we will defend that wrongness and we will look harshly on people who tell us that it's wrong because we think that they are the ones who are not critical. They are the ones who are intolerant. They are the ones who are not on the same page as us in trying to be less biased. So I really don't think that anyone can not be biased. <laughs> I think everyone is biased, will always be. However, it's more what we said earlier that you can just take little steps to be better. I don't think I can give advice to someone to not be biased because I, for a start, am biased, so I wouldn't take my own advice. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I, and I, and I don't think it was about giving the one, two, three steps to becoming unbiased, you know. Step one, blah, blah, blah. Step two, blah, blah, blah. Step three, blah, blah, blah. And then finally you will be unbiased. Job well done. There was that A, B, C, D at the end there, and I feel like it, that's helpful. I'm not dismissing it, but I also feel like someone could take A, B, C, D and then just mainline their way into affinity bias. Yeah, but what we're, what we're looking to do is become more critical in our thinking around ourselves and the information that we try and process in order to make decisions and have a more rational, more logical and a fuller understanding of the planet and our interactions with others, um, our relationships and the decisions that we have to make uh, in life um, and at work. So... Yeah, it's never going to be perfect. And thinking that perfection exists is some kind of bias in itself. So thanks for your review and summary that you can't help. Hold and on, I know I'm going to save this. Dan is dispirited and I've just thought of a much uh -huh. more productive way to end it that Dan can feel is positive as opposed to saying, you're all just going to be biased forever. Forget everything we've just said because it's all pointless and Dan's just wasted his time and he probably could, just could have done something better with it. I'm not going to end like that. I'm going to end like this. Pause. Sorry, I used so many words there that I was on the verge of actually saying something pithy and then I used a lot of words to say I was about to say something pithy. Yes, there are ways in which collectively problems can skew and the obvious ones at the moment are things like political polarization so rather than thinking um, obviously everyone is always biased forever there's nothing you can do about it so this whole thing is pointless what you can do is recognize a specific problem that is 
widely recognized right now, which is political polarization. And you can think to yourself, when I am aiming to be less biased, when I'm aiming to think critically, there's a little bit of a goal, which is to solve a problem that is presented right now. So therefore, it's it's not just to think to, to, to try and think about every single one of the 125 biases and how I could go through the ABCD step to avoid all 125 all the time in every single waking hour of my life. It's more like there's a distinct problem of political polarization. I could try and improve myself a little bit to not use confirmation bias by constantly sharing articles from a source such as the guardian or the telegraph or the new york times i i could not think of myself as being absolutely 100 percent aligned with a particular political party and that that party is correct and that everyone else is therefore wrong and i am right and other people who do not share my beliefs are wrong that is what polarization is. And if that is a problem that exists in society, as well as I've been led to believe it does, then that is where the bias can be looked at. Instead of thinking, well, there's 125 of them and I'm uh, unconsciously doing them all day long and it's exhausting to think about how to try and fix that. And anyway, James says you can't, so it's pointless. Instead of that, focus on the problem, try little steps to improve yourself if everyone does that, then that particular problem won't be so intensified. And then other problems like climate change can be addressed without unnecessary human failings such as political polarisation getting in the way. <laughs> I like it, James, and I think it was a very positive uh, ending. And uh, a friend of mine once suggested that you, you know, to in order to kind of counteract some of that confirmation bias, you simply, you know... If you're a, in Britain like a, a Labour-supporting vegan, why not pop onto the news feeds for some of the meat lovers' websites? Click and follow <laughs> them as well. You know, have a little look. If you're already following The Guardian, why not also follow The Sun and, you know, The Daily Mail? And, and, and have a little look. But also, why not follow some of the original sources, the actual scientists, some of the doctors, you know, some of the social researchers, some of the authors that look into investigate and publish all of the work that we see filtered through mainstream media as well as the left and right wing media channels. Uh, do you want to do possibly for the last time a Robert Greene law of power to see if you are a psychopath? I feel like I'm not going to pursue this for a an indefinite future um, desperately trying to find ways in which you, Dan Brown, are secretly a psychopath. Uh, which I'm not. Or am well, I? One last time. Let's yeah. see. Okay, let's go. Psychopath test. It's a psychopath test. And that's the same song for small talk, really. This is law number 43. Yep. Work on the hearts and minds of others. And the summary is... Coercion creates a reaction that will eventually work against you. You must seduce others into wanting to move in your direction. A person you have seduced becomes your loyal pawn. And the way to seduce others is to operate on their individual psychologies and weaknesses. Soften up the resistant by working on their emotions, playing on what they hold dear and what they fear. Ignore the hearts and minds of others and they will grow to hate you.
Yeah, I definitely do that. That's almost exactly what I do all the time at work. But in essence, that doesn't seem like a terrible thing or a psychopath thing. I mean, knowing what a person likes, what they're good at, perhaps, you know, what they're not so good at and need support and help with, understanding what a person's needs are, in essence, that's like quite a humanistic, um, supportive stance. That's probably the least psychopathic thing I think I've heard. And and so perhaps what's-his-name and his laws of whatever they are has got some nice ideas in there too. It depends on your intent because if, for example, you are trying to get someone to vote in a certain way and instead of just giving them neutral facts, you say, hey, vegan cat lover, don't you know that the covid vaccine is made with meat and poisons cats or whatever uh, in other words you're, you you find their weakness and you empathize with them and you manipulate them into voting a certain way and they would never have done that if you just said here's some interesting information about the topic at hand and it's got nothing to do with vegan cats perhaps i think one thing we can all take away from this episode is that cats eat meat. There is nowhere on earth that has more cats, in my cognitive bias, than here where I am now in Casablanca. And I can assure everyone listening that they definitely eat meat. The cats in Casablanca are not vegan. And I can also confirm that because not 10 minutes before we started recording this podcast, I had to embarrassingly scream no kitty naughty kitty stop it kitty while she was stalking a mouse outside that was absolutely frozen in fear only i was too scared to go near my cat to stop it from eating this mouse so i'm guessing she probably has now finished it off because <laughs> the cat's quite protective of a mouse it's got in its mouth Maybe we could ignore all this stuff about political polarisation and cognitive biases and things, and maybe we could um, just scapegoat cats and claim that cats are the source of all problems, and then we could form a new kind of humanity that doesn't solve the problem of cognitive bias, but does solve problems amongst humans by re-channeling all our hatred to cats we're not going to do that. But anyway, it was a excellent episode, I hope. Um, it was, it was um, very much appreciated that you joined us, listener. Um, and from Daniel P. Brown in the London Private Practice Studio, it's a goodbye from me. And it's going to be goodbye from me in just a second, but a little reminder that if you haven't then have a look at privatepracticepodcast.net where you can find all previous episodes. That's not the actual thing that I wanted to say. The thing that I wanted to say was about potential forthcoming episodes, Um, but that might just be a conversation that Dan and I have after recording. So maybe I should just go back and go, and it's goodbye. (laughs) And it's goodbye from me in the heart of the financial district of Casablanca, surrounded by skyscrapers just to give the uh the listener a picture of where i am um although most of those skyscrapers are artist impressions and haven't been constructed yet but soon to be the not not just the financial center of casablanca or the financial center of morocco but the financial center of africa that's where the private practice podcast is located goodbye (laughs) 
Preston from the ordinary boys. 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 Preston from the ordinary boys.